Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Whenever Paul's here, and I'll, I'll do this also with several other teachers, Christopher's like that with me, uh, I will take two sets of notes, what they're saying and what the Lord is saying apart from what they're saying. And uh, that's where the Lord began to deal with me on this. And so I want to look at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read the text. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your, my, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. So this lady, she, was in a, she was, had a problem. She was, she was in trouble. She had been married to a son of the prophet, uh, the prophets. The sons of the prophets were those who were participants in the school of the prophets. Uh, Elijah had a school. He had a ministry school, school of supernatural ministry, a little Bible school he was running, known as the school of the prophets, and the participants were the sons of the prophets. And this woman's husband was one of the students under Elijah. And she, he was a peer, a fellow student with Elisha, the prophet that she's now come to. Well, Elijah was now dead, and so the mantle had passed to Elisha, but now her husband was dead. And so she was left, here was a woman who was related to a man who had rubbed shoulders with arguably the greatest man of his generation. She had, they were eyewitnesses of some of the most uh, phenomenal miracles that were taking place in that hour in human history. They were in the thick of the move of God, but now this move of God had died down. The leader of it had died. The mantle had passed to Elisha, and now her husband was dead, and all she was left with was some debt. This was a woman who was sitting in deep disappointment. And now the creditors are coming to cash in and demand payment for the debt left by her husband. So Elisha asks her these two diagnostic questions. How can I help you? Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? And then he asked the second question, tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all. And that almost as an afterthought, it says, she said, except a small jar of oil. So she was left with debt. Seems that she had a house. We don't know if she was renting that house or what. She had two sons, debt, and a little jar of oil, and that's all she had. And so this woman was left in this situation. The Lord began to talk to me about this passage the night that Paul was here and began to talk to me about really about two different planes, uh, that, two different subjects that the Lord is dealing with here. There is the one subject of our spiritual life, of living with disappointment, of living in a, an emotional deficit and how we, need, how we can get out of that. The other plane, there is an undeniable financial component to this passage. There is an undeniable financial component to the miracle that happened. Literally, a miracle broke in to rescue her from her indebtedness. But it wasn't a check of benevolence. It wasn't a lottery ticket. It wasn't that she prayed for a breakthrough and gold showed up at her house. The prophet understood she needed to bring something to the table. 
And so there was this partnership between heaven and earth. He said, what can I do for you? He knew as the prophet, he had the mantle. He was, he was a man of God. He was a, a man that uh, received the mantle from Elijah and was now in the midst of his ministry that would produce twice the miracles that Elijah's ministry did. This man was anointed. But he also wanted to know what is in your house. And so I want to look at this, this thing here, uh, this, this subject. So it says, I'm just going to read you some things that the Lord's been speaking to me this morning. And uh, we just need the grace of God to get through this. I'm telling you, my heart is full. Okay. Here's the problem. This is a woman who was living in deep disappointment. I want you to put yourself in her place. That she was on the inside of the greatest move of her generation. And now that thing was over and her husband had died and left her in this destitute position. And as I was asking the Lord this morning, early this morning, what he was wanting to say to us, because I've been studying this passage for a number of weeks, the Lord began to speak this to me. Disappointment is the emotional debt we pay for unrealized dreams. For emotional investments made into unfulfilled expectations. It accrues over a long period of time and then the debt collector comes calling. Expectation allows us to make withdrawals on the future and enjoy it before it arrives. You see, disappointment is the exact opposite of expectation. Or you could frame it more as the biblical concept of hope. Hope is future faith. Hope enables us to reach into the future and taste of the benefits of future blessing. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in hope. What he's saying is, your present joy is dependent upon your future expectation. If you have a conviction of future good, then you can live in the present, even in the midst of lack, and still feel a sense of joy. We rejoice in hope. And when your joy begins to diminish, in actuality, it's the, the dashboard light warning you there's a problem under the hood. Your hope is draining out of the engine of your life. Hope is an ability to reach into the future. It's expectation. Expectation causes us to make withdrawals on the future realization of our dreams. And so we, we may even be in a hard situation right now, but if we have hold of hope, we reach into the future and we enjoy that. We make those withdrawals and it gives us the strength because the joy of the Lord is our strength. It gives us the strength to continue to fight in the present. Even though we may not be experiencing the good we're expecting, as long as we have that expectation alive, we have the strength. We're making withdrawals on the future. The problem is when those expectations are not realized. When disappointment sets in, Scripture says hope deferred makes the heart sick. The heart sickness that Scripture is speaking of there is that disappointment that we try to contain. If you have disappointment in a given area, we try to contain that, but Scripture calls it a sick heart. And the danger of that, that disappointment is it begins to reach in and infect every other area of our heart. And so the way that we as human beings, and we've all been there, deal with disappointment is we begin to lower our expectations. 
You see, when we make withdrawals on the future and those future hopes are not realized, disappointment sets in, it's the debt collector coming and saying, I want payment on, your fut- on, on these, in, these withdrawals you made on the future. Let me put it this way. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Disappointment comes when we have invested energy and in dreaming of something that never arrives. We overextend our hearts, our expectations, and then we must pay with disappointment. We have allowed our expectations to rise only to have them unrealized. When we dream and plan, we are investing emotional energy in our future. My computer's wanting me to look at my email, sorry. When we dream and plan, we are investing emotional energy in the future. When this investment fails to materialize, we are left with, a, we are left with an emotional deficit. Our heart is in the red. This happens when we have spent yesterday's or tomorrow's energy or yesterday's energy on tomorrow's dreams and we are now left with insufficient emotional reserves to cover today's needs. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is this. When we are today, I'm spending all my energy dreaming about the future and that future isn't realized, there comes a point at which now I'm left without reserves for the moment. Disappointment is a very dangerous thing. Now, that really becomes dicey for a church like ours because we are a prophetic people. We're like this woman. We're married to the prophetic. And the prophetic, by nature, speaks of the future. The word prophecy in the New Testament is a compound word, pro It literally means before and light, light in advance. And so through the prophetic, God gives us glimpses at the future. And you don't need to be a charismatic, Pentecostal, prophetic church to fall prey to that because we have the word of God. And the word of God itself addresses our future through promises. The word of God gets our hopes up in the moment. We go to the word to encourage ourselves. But to varying degrees, we've each found ourselves at some point having gotten our hopes up only to have our hopes dashed. And to the degree that's happened is to the degree that you found yourself disappointed. And that disappointment has to be dealt with. If it isn't dealt with, it'll begin to infect every other area of our life. Believe me, I've been there. I remember a time where I, in in prayer, I just cried out to the Lord. It wasn't premeditated. It was just something that kind of jumped out my mouth and I was surprised I said it. And this is what I said to the Lord. I said, God, I'm disappointed and I, I, I'm disillusioned and I'm disappointed. I thought I had an appointment and it was an illusion. There were some things that I felt the Lord had spoken to me. The Lord had promised me. And I put a, a lot of emotional investment in this thing only to not have it materialize in the time frame that I thought it should. And the emotional disappointment to that thing endangered me of never seeing any of it happen. I began to be very cynical You see, cynicism is like emotional stinginess. (laughs) See, when you've overextended yourself financially, we do need to take a reckoning. We need to bring ourselves back within and live within our means. But there's a tendency, we want to live well below our means. We want to live in a stingy way that now now we're not going to get our hopes up and we become cynical and even if we're not careful, sarcastic. It becomes a very dangerous state to live in. 
Because we're not going to live in faith from that perspective. And that's where this, this woman found herself. I really believe what the Lord wants to, the way in which the Lord wants to apply this passage to you and I is this analogy of debt being disappointment. Of that, her husband, being a prophet, had overextended the family from all appearances. That he had, paid, he had drawn, withdrawn funds from the future to live in the present, thinking that payday was coming, and it never did. He died before it was realized. And it seemed as though this guy didn't leave anything for his children. And now his wife was left to deal with the, the fallout of this thing. This is a woman who was dealing with disappointment. And what the Lord wants to teach us is how to deal with disappointment. I can't help when I read the word, okay? I can't help but read it through the lens of revival. That's just who I am. That's how I read things. Christopher has teased me before. Yeah, oh yeah, Pastor Dave's doing a series. Marriage and revival. Child rearing and revival. Finances and revival, you know? It's, I, I can't help myself. That's, that's how God has wired me. I live for the move of God, the invasion of heaven in, in, on earth. And there's something about living in an outpouring that can get you to dream really big and to extend your faith in huge ways. But it can also set you up for disappointment if we fill in the gaps of the mystery of what God is saying and a lot of times I've seen it where God moves in a powerful way, whether it's in an individual's life, maybe you've had a season where God's really ministered to you and, and there's just a, a time of visitation for you that you've had personally. And you begin to dream big, you begin to awaken again and, and have all these hopes and dreams and then as that thing begins to die out, you've got to really protect your heart against disappointment. Or maybe you've been through a move of God corporately where God's done some great things. I remember back in the 90s, I'm telling you, there, there were some bold claims made from some pulpits that were in the middle of revival about revival sweeping the nation and the nation is gonna be completely different. This revival's never gonna end. And here we're 25 years later, and it did, and it isn't. And so what do we do with those things? What the prophet was telling this woman, he asked her a diagnostic question. He asked her, what is in your house? What the woman did not realize, well, let's read the rest of the text. We'll get into that. Let's read the rest of this text. So verse 3, she says, I, I, just, I don't have anything at all. And then as an afterthought, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. He said, man, this is a family affair. The whole family needs to be in on this thing. He says, pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jar jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he, he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay off your debts. You and your sons can now live on what is left. He was saying that what you already have in your house is the answer to your present need. You already possess the answer 
to your need. And it wasn't only going to pay off her past indebtedness. It wasn't only going to deal with the disappointment. It was also going to cause her to dream again. It was also going to provide for her future. And so often, when we're in disappointment, we begin to cry out to God for something externally. We ask him to do something more. But what we need to realize is every time God does something in our life, when the, when the manifestation of those things, whether it's revival, when the manifest presence begins to die down, when the promises are no longer coming in your quiet time and it's, it's like radio silence, all you're hearing is crickets. <laughs> when those things happen, what we need to realize is the previous visitation imparted to us the very thing that will carry us through that time of isolation. Back in 2008, it was, would have been in January of 2008, there was a young man that was attending our church. He was a Teen Challenge graduate and then was working at Teen Challenge. I didn't really know him well. Roger McKim did. Roger introduced him to me. And uh, during that short period of time, he attended Heartland and then moved to IHOP and was at IHOP for many years in a uh, strong prophetic voice. And he gave me a word. It was in January. And this word, I still have it on my hard drive. And it was a strange word. When he gave it to me, I read it. And it just kind of struck me weird. And I, I saved it and forgot about it. Didn't, didn't give it another, another thought for about three years. And had I given it another thought, it would really help me during the latter two of those three years. And this was the word. Revival is coming to Heartland. It's not a matter of if, it's when, and it's coming soon. And then he said, but the Lord told me that he's going to add to this move of God desert theology and the theology that comes from when God is not felt. I'm thinking, that's a weird word, reject. <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. It just seemed weird. And there was, there was some other things about the future that we've not seen yet. But I, I, it was just kind of a strange word. And so I, I saved it and forgot about it. And within a matter of months, on a Tuesday afternoon, I can tell you the point in time where heaven invaded this building. I walked out of my office on a Tuesday afternoon and there were bodies all over the, all over the, the office. Uh, a guy that used to go to church here was living in Minnesota, dropped by. He ended up laid out under the power of God just passing through. That was Tuesday by Saturday night. It was standing room only. People were driving in from as far as Montana and multiple states and it was glorious and some of you were here and it was awesome and it lasted really strong for several months and after about nine months, for all practical purposes, it had lifted. And during that season, I really wrestled with the Lord when that lifted. And I, I that's when that prayer came out of my heart. Lord, I'm disappointed and disillusioned. I thought I had an appointment and it was based on an illusion. I felt like I'd been misled. I felt like I was promised something and then it didn't happen. Then I began to question my ability to hear, and I thought, Lord, did I grieve you? Was there something that I did as the leader that, that caused you to withdraw? Now, the fact is, if we were experiencing in 06 what we were experiencing at the latter part of 08 and into 09, I'd have been doing backflips. But once I'd experienced 08, now I was disappointed. 
And I kept asking the Lord, and God began to speak to me out of Matthew 25. I want you to turn there, because this is very relevant to this passage. Matthew 25. God began to speak to me out of this passage. And as he did, I began to share on this passage a lot. And it wasn't until 2010, I was sitting up on the balcony looking for a text one time, and all of a sudden that word came up, and I thought, oh, there's that word that that strange dude gave me, that strange word, that strange, I hope he's not listening by podcast, That, that, that word that was given to me. And as I began to read it, I was stunned. So I want you to hear what the Lord began to speak to me out of this passage in Matthew 25. Now for some of you, this is a repeat of what we looked at in in 2009. But it's very relevant because I believe the Lord is calling attention to this right now. Because he's wanting each and every one of us, he's asking us the question. I want you to close your eyes right now. I want you to picture the Lord standing in front of you. And he's asking you this question. Tell me, what is in your house? What is in your house? Because I'm telling you that the deliverance and the provision for your dreams is already in your possession. You just need to add it to the anointing. What what it's going to take to realize the dreams he's already given you is already in your possession. Let's look at Matthew 25. Look at verse 1. It says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. So this is a passage on the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, verse 14, Again, it, it, it is what? The kingdom of God. Again, the kingdom of God will be like Matthew Matthew 25, verse 14. And he tells this parable. It's a famous parable. Most of us are very familiar with it. Let's read through it very quickly. Again, it will be like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To the one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his, put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more by putting it to work. But the one who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man with the two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then verse 24, the man who had received one bag of gold and came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I do not scatter seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Essentially, what he was saying is if you didn't have the ability to produce on your own, why didn't you invest your efforts in what I gave you in somebody else's ministry that could? Serve another man's vision if you don't have your own. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a harsh passage. And that's what I preached on for about six months. So what... what what was the point of this? The Lord began to speak to me very clearly out of this passage. And he, he spoke to me five points out of this scenario. And I'll just give them to you and we'll look at this passage because this is very relevant to where we're at right now. In that, the Lord is wanting to show us, I'm telling you, God is about to multiply the oil that many of you have. He's about ready to give you wisdom to invest your oil. And the secret to paying off your past and funding your future is already in your possession, but you got to learn to use it. So what are the five points here? Here it is. Number one, visitation. There was a master who called his servants to himself. He spent time with them. He called them into his presence. It's visitation. Out of visitation comes impartation. He gave them something of value. He gave them something that he had. Any time you are in the presence of God, any time you are in the vicinity of something God is doing, you can't help yourself. You are going to pick something up. But it's only eyes of faith that really understand that. And often we can think we haven't received anything when in actuality we have. I knew of, I, I remember I had a good friend that he was, he was in a revival meeting in the mid-90s and man, the spirit of God fell on this place. People were being blasted, laid out under the power for hours, shaking, baking and all that, you know, and he just stood there not feeling anything. But he bought a VHS tape of the, one of the services from that revival, went home at his church on Sunday night and just stuck it into a VCR. And the same thing happened in his church. And they were launched into several years of revival and tremendous miracles. He didn't know he'd received anything. Be careful that you don't devalue the oil that you've been given. You cannot be in God's presence without picking something up. When I was a little kid, my dad used to tell me and my brother John, he'd say, boys, I want you to go down to the altar. He said, now tonight, because Sunday nights were always ministry time. It was like revival night at our church. We were a latter rain church. And uh, so Sunday night, there'd be preaching, and then they'd go down to the altars, and people get touched and prophesy over. And my dad would say, get down. He said, you don't have to understand what's going on. We're just little kids looking around, you know, wow. And uh, he said, just get down there. He said, I want you to be around what God is doing. You're going to pick something up. And that's good. That's good preaching. That's good wisdom. We need to be around the things of God. And you're picking things up. 
Whether, and see, the danger is, is that we look at what other people, how other people act and how they receive. And we, uh, the other night, the, the elders gathered and we were talking about how to receive from the Spirit of God. And, and Christopher was teaching. And Christopher, we, we just sat around in a circle here at the altar. And Christopher said, okay, now as you begin to feel the presence of God, I want you to raise your hand. Because what we're doing, now that might sound weird, weird to some of you, but we're training our senses to be acclimate to the presence of God, to recognize what the Spirit of God is doing. It's the same thing they do with astronauts and pilots. They'll put them in a, a, a room where they decompress, and they'll, they'll give them a, 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 a notepad and a pen, and they'll begin to suck all the oxygen out, and they'll tell them, now, when you begin to feel any kind of uh, sensations in your body, write that down very quickly because everybody responds differently to the lack of oxygen. And you're going to pass out, but before you pass out, you need to make note of how you feel because that will become your roadmap, the safeguard, for if you're ever up in the plane and the oxygen begins to drain out, you're going to recognize what that feeling is because it's too late to learn when you're at the helm of a, a, you know, a, a plane up in the sky. Oh, what's this feeling? You know, it's too late. So they, you know, some, they'd write down, oh, I feel tingling in my hands. I feel, I feel my, my vision is blurry. I feel, they'd fall out. Then they'd wake them back up and they'd read. And they'd do it again. So that they would become familiar with how it felt, those atmospheric conditions. The same is true with the presence of God. We need to train our senses and while we're, while we're doing that, Christopher says, you know, how many of you are feeling the presence of God? And immediately, I felt the presence of God in just the slightest way, so I raised my hand. It wasn't that I wasn't, it was, it was already there, the, pres, the manifest presence of God was there. I just wasn't aware of it until he called attention to it, which was a lesson to me. I need to dial in. I talked with some others. After, my, wife, my wife, we were driving down the road. We were dialoguing about this the next day. And she said, I didn't, I didn't feel anything, but I saw this. And she told me what she saw, and I'm like, that was amazing. But that's how she receives. She, she sees things. Other people feel things. Other people hear things. Paul covers this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, if we were all a hand, where would the sense of smell be? If we were all a foot, where would the sense of hearing be? We're all, we all have different ways, and together as the body, we can navigate these things. My point is, is that everybody's receiving, but we're often unaware of it. And so when, when it's all said and done, we can say, well, I have nothing. Well, except maybe a little oil. When in actuality, that little oil is the secret to the problem you're presently facing. So there's visitation, there's impartation. And then there's isolation. I don't like that one, okay? I wrestle with even using that term. But God will impart and depart. There are ways, the ways of heaven is that there are cycles and seasons in the Christian life. First the natural, then the spiritual. There are seasons that God has created in the natural. There are climate, uh, climatologists, they study the atmospheric conditions, and they can anticipate the next thing by understanding the present thing. That's what meteorology is. They understand atmospheric conditions. 
This is what David is talking about in Psalm chapter 25, where he says, oh Lord, show me your ways. He's saying that this God who seems so unpredictable can be very predictable when you know his ways. If we understand not just his works and we get to see what he did, but we understand his heart and we understand why he did what he did, we can begin to anticipate what he's doing. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day. He said, you know that you, you know the weather patterns. You see, uh, you know, red at night, sailor's delight. Red in the morning, sailor's warning. You can read the weather conditions, but you don't know the signs of the times. He's saying, if you study me, I will share my heart with you. I'll share with you the way in which I work, and you can anticipate what I'm doing. And it will save us from disappointment. And I was going through this massive disappointment in 2009, into 2010. And this was the passage that God was trying to minister to me on. That there's visitation. He calls us into his presence. There's impartation. He gives us something of substance, something that is valuable to him. Whether you realize it or not, he's given you something. And then he withdraws. He, he goes, and it's what you do with in his absence, what he gave you in his presence, that will determine whether you are promoted or demoted. It's what the, the lesson of this story is. That he came, he imparted, he departed, and then he returned, and now it's evaluation. Visitation, impartation, isolation, evaluation. The Lord is watching how we use what he gave us. Now, in this guy's case, he was a wicked, lazy servant. But there are believers who aren't using what they're given, not because they're wicked, but it's because they don't realize they've been given something. See, for all practical purposes, it looked like this widow woman was left destitute by her man of God husband. I'm sure she was wrestling with that. Well, fine, uh, that's great. He saw all these miracles, all these healings. Oh, great services. But he left us with nothing. But in actuality, there was a reserve of oil left from his labors. There was something left from his life that was sitting on the shelf and was going to be the key to their future breakthrough. She just didn't realize it. She didn't realize the value she had in her house. So it took her going to this man of God and he said, tell me, what do you have in your house? He's causing her to pause. I want you to evaluate. I want you to assess what you have. And what she thought was a little oil was just a little container of big oil. It was more than enough to meet all her needs. But the prophet had to call her attention to it. And so we have visitation. We have impartation. We have isolation. And we have evaluation. And then we have promotion or demotion based on what we did with what he gave us in the last visitation. Now this, many scholars will look at this passage and say, well, this is church history. 
It's talking about Jesus came to earth as the master. He gave gifts to his church. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And now he'll return at the end of the age and we'll all give an account for what we did with what he gave us. Now that isn't, there's nothing wrong with that interpretation other than that is not what Jesus is saying. I mean, you can make that application. Just understand, you are, it's what, what Bill Culver calls a non-contextual principle. Because the context doesn't hold that up. Because what is he saying? He said, this is how the kingdom of God will be at the end of the age. So specifically, he's applying this, this pattern, this template, this cycle of behavior, this cycle of interaction of heaven with earth to the last days. Now, To be fair, the last days began at Pentecost because Peter stood up and said, this is that which was said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And he's saying, this is, it's already arrived. So we're just in the more last of the last days. We're in the final hours. But the fact is he's calling attention. This is a pattern that happens. Not, it's not the overspan of history. It's the cycles in the church and the cycles in our individual lives. So we need to understand that. Because if you don't understand that, you are going to set yourself up for disappointment. Because what happens is God visits and he imparts, but then there are those spaces in between where we are beginning to use what he gave us. And if we're not careful, we can minimize what he gave us and bury it rather than use it and multiply it. See, this little jar of oil remained a little jar of oil unvalued on the shelf of this widow woman until the prophet called attention to it and he said, put that little jar of oil under or over empty vessels. Place a demand on that oil and when you place emptiness underneath the spout, the glory will come out. That thing is going to keep pouring until there's no more emptiness. But we've got to place a demand. That's why it's very key that these two wise servants, it says they put, they put their money to work. They were given something by the master and they immediately began to invest that. And all of that is rooted on two things. Their theology and their identity. Their view of the master and their corresponding view of themselves. Because a wrong view of the master will bring wrong conclusions about ourselves as a servant. The first two said, you entrusted us. Listen to that. They, they saw that. They, they looked at it not as a, a burden that they had to bear, but as an entrustment, as a vote of confidence. This, this, this grand, rich, wealthy landowner believed in their ability to steward his stuff. And they're thinking, man, he's so smart. He's accumulated all this. If he believes in me, I'm going to believe in me. He knows better than I do. I'm going to believe in me. Because they saw it as an entrustment. They saw the, 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 the uh, confidence and the, uh, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The the blessing that he was bestowing upon them saying, you are trustworthy. So he entrusted them with something of great value. And immediately they put that to work and it multiplied. But the last one, you see his interaction with the master was completely different. And before we be too hard on this guy, I would propose to you every one of us has been that guy at different seasons in our life. I know I have, and I don't want to be left alone up here, so I'm going to accuse you as well. 
He says, I knew you were a hard taskmaster. Listen to the perspective he has on God. He said, who reaps where you do not sow and harvests where you cast no seed. In other words, you're you're a hard-nosed father and you require things of me that you did not give me any ability to produce. You didn't give me the grace to produce this life. You have expectations that I can't even realize. So I took what you gave me and I buried it. And here I'm giving it back to you. His view of the master caused him to have a view of himself. And that view of himself caused him to bury his gift, to not use what was bestowed upon him. And then Jesus closes this fascinating parable with this troubling phrase. He who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And he who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. It's like the anti-Robin Hood, you know. Let's steal from the poor and give to the rich. How does that work? Why would the Lord, why would he do that? Why would he take from somebody who has so very little and take it from them and give it to someone who already has more? And then you look at it and you realize, you know what, it doesn't even make sense. I know, okay, I believe that there's grace for me to say this. I'm not going to be struck by lightning. It doesn't even make sense what Jesus just said. He said, he who does not have, comma, even what he has, whoa, 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 whoa. How can I have something if I don't have anything? And if I don't have anything, how can I have something to take? Because I don't have anything. What's he saying? What he is saying is that every one of us have something. There has been a deposit made in our account by the master. And your view of him will determine whether you value what he's given you or not. But what happens is, as we have our expectations of what's going to happen, and we have our deadlines based on that, we've all been there, and we get disillusioned, and we end up starving what God is is wanting us to do with what we already have. We diminish the value of the oil. See, what this, the greatest thing that this dead prophet could leave his family is a value for the oil. If he, if he left them with an understanding, a value system for a little oil, then they had everything that they would need. But they needed the right perspective. You see, the lady's perspective was a poverty mentality. I have nothing, comma, except a little oil. And she was in danger of even what she had being taken from her. This woman was like the foolish servant and just hours before the master came to settle accounts, she ran to the prophet and she saved her own skin. (laughs) Ooh, I almost fell off that stage. That would have been interesting. (laughs) So what happened was she rescued herself by not going to the master with nothing. What the, what the prophet was telling her is you have something in your house. She said, I have nothing but a little oil. But she had everything she needed. And what Jesus is telling us in this passage, he who has will be given more. What do you really believe about the account that God has made deposited 
deposits in in your life. There is not a person sitting in this room that doesn't have something of extreme value from heaven. Every one of us have something to offer. But it's the belief, that conviction, that value system that, that values the little oil that we each have that will enable us to multiply it into more. It will enable us to become those that steward abundance. You see, if you believe that you have nothing, then in actuality you'll lose what you already have because your lack of value for what you do have will literally starve that thing. So here I am in this passage all these months back in 2009 into 2010 and the Lord began to deal with me about how he did this in Jesus' life. He took him out into the wilderness. He has this powerful encounter with God in the wilderness or in the, in the river. He, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Establishes Jesus' identity. Man, if he needs that, how much more do we need it? He hears the voice of God and what happens next? He's immediately driven into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And what was the test? If you're really the son of God, he was tested in the desert over what he heard in the river. The very thing God spoke to him was now being tested by the enemy. And he had to stand his ground. He was taken into that place of the wilderness where his senses were starved. There was no revival meeting. There was no, no great manifestations. He was starved. His, uh, he was in sensory deprivation out there. And after 40 days, it says, and then he was hungry. Ha! I bet he was. And the enemy comes to him in bodily form and is tempting him. And Jesus had to pass the test there. And it says, then he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Luke is very, very clear. Luke chapter 3. He went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. The power was entrusted to him because he understood his identity. And he refused to manufacture a miracle. Refused to manufacture ministry to validate his identity. He wasn't going to use the power of God to validate who he was because he already knew and he stood in the wilderness. So these were the things the Lord was speaking to me in 2009. And then I sat up in the balcony in 2010 and all of a sudden up came this message and it said, revival is coming to Heartland. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and it will be soon was 2008. It was within a matter of months that we had an outpouring. But then he went on to say, but I'm going to add to this revival the desert theology and the teaching that comes from when God is not felt. I can't tell you what a huge relief I felt as a leader because God was already telling me, listen, I've already got a plan. It wasn't that you guys made mistakes and steered this thing off. It's not that we did everything perfectly, believe me. But what he was, he was already telling me before he poured out his spirit, I have a plan. And God always operates by a template. And when you understand his ways, you can anticipate him and cooperate with him. 
But if you don't, you will become disappointed and disillusioned. So God's ways, the cycle, the seasons of heaven is that he visits us. He imparts to us. He withdraws so that we can begin to use what we have. And then he comes back and that's how we, we literally steward ourselves into the abundance that we so long for. He who has will be given more. But he who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. We've got to value the little that we have. We've got to be oh so careful that we don't diminish and despise the day of small beginnings. Paul told Timothy, he said, I, I call you to stir up the gift that is within you, that is within you through the laying on of my hands. He's talking about impartation. Something came on Timothy's life. There was a gift of the Spirit that settled on Timothy's life that he didn't have before his spiritual father, Paul, laid hands on him. But now Paul is telling him, listen, you've received an impartation, but now you've got to fan it into flame. What's he implying? That there's just a, a burning ember. He didn't receive a forest fire. He received an ember. And it was up to him to fan that thing into flame and become all that God called him to be. But he had to understand what was already burning within him. And so often when God does something in our life, we end up despising the day of small beginnings because the promise was for the, the full fruition, the full maturation of the thing that he gives us in infant form. And so when it arrives in infant form, we can despise the day of small beginnings, never realizing that we're sabotaging ourselves from getting the fullness that he promised us. You put it this way, God only made trees once. And from then on, trees produce fruit and seeds and nuts, and we have to plant them, and they have to grow, we have to water them, and we, we cooperate with the cycles. But if we get discouraged because we don't have a full-grown oak tree in our backyard, we're, we can be in danger of digging up the little sapling that's beginning to push through the ground. So we need to understand the cycles of how God works. There's both receiving in outpourings and there is cultivating the reserves of those, the, the aftermath. We're putting to work what God gave to us. And both are valid and both are needed. If you haven't caught it yet, sometimes I can be a, uh, guilty of hyperbole. I can overstate things. Okay? I said a couple weeks ago that we're not people who pray for revival. We're people who cultivate the remains of the last one. Hey, I can't help myself. Okay? I still pray for revival. But not to the neglect of stewarding what we already have. You see, there's this tension. Hope. Hope is a mixture of expectation of the future that keeps us, it, it keeps us in the fight. But there's also this, one of the reasons we have hope is because we're dissatisfied with the present. I don't hope for things that I already have. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. So hope by definition has this element of dissatisfaction with the present. So this what Paul calls frustration in Romans 8 in intercession, 
We're being subjected to frustration because we don't have what we hope for. Frustration is a necessary tension that we have to live in as children of God. That frustration is, I have hope, expectation, my hopes are still up. I believe this is possible, but I also am dissatisfied with the present. But we've got to live within that tension because if we go too far either way, this one being so dissatisfied with the present that I lose sight of the future, I will get in despair. But if I get so, I have so much hope that I'm, and I'm not dissatisfied with the present, I can get into apathy. And we need, to, we need to live within this tension of knowing what we have, valuing what we have, but understanding that God wants to give us more. And the pathway to get the more is to use what we already have. The secret for the foolish servant was he needed to use what, we ha- what he had. The two wise servants immediately put theirs to work. And the secret for this widow woman was to put that little cruise of oil to work. She already had in her house the answer to her breakthrough. It was going to settle past debts and provide for future provision. But she had to use what she had. And she was in danger of evaluating her present state, saying, I have nothing. It was just as an afterthought that she said, accept a little jar of oil, to which the prophet zeroed in and said, that is the secret of your deliverance. Many of you, your future breakthrough is already sitting on the shelf of your life, but it's in a little tiny jar form. And what God wants to do is he wants to multiply that little jar of oil into jugs of oil all around the room. He wants to give you oak trees, but all you have is an acorn. He wants to give you a breakthrough, but you've got to value what you have in the present. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I never fully understand why God has me preach on anything. I've got my opinions. But I believe that God wants to deal with disappointment and re-engage many hearts. I want to read something here. I was just processing some things with the Lord and I was thinking about this woman at the end of her life. Or at this stage of her life, her husband's already dead. She was, I mean, they were on the inside of the greatest move of God of their generation. And now, not only the man of God that was leading is gone, her husband is gone and she's left with debt. So again, I want to reiterate this. When we plan and dream, we are investing emotional energy in the future. When this investment fails to materialize, we are left with an emotional deficit. Our heart is in the red. This happens when we have spent yesterday's energy on tomorrow's dream and are now left with insufficient emotional reserve to cover today's needs. And then I wrote this. There is something about revival that causes one to extend themselves, to live for the future. It's similar to the bull market in finance. It seems it'll last forever. People take wild risks. It seems like it'll last forever until it doesn't. But you know, the interesting thing about finance is when things crash, that's the the point at which fortunes are made and lost. The greatest fortunes are made when everyone else is selling because they panic and they see it with eyes of lack. 
But when we have eyes of faith, we realize it's time to put what we have to work. And our little can become much more in times when everything's crashing around us. Father, Lord, I ask God that you would do deep surgery in each of our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the good season we are in. Lord, I thank you for the oil on the shelves of the houses around this room. I thank you that just as that widow woman still had a jar of oil left over from her husband's labors, Lord, we have jars of oil. Each of them have dates on it. Different times you spoke to us. Different encounters we had. Different services we were a part of. Different things you've done in our lives. Now, Lord, I'm asking God that in this season you would teach us to put it to work. Lord, help us to invest what you've already placed within us. Lord, I ask God that those that struggle this morning with feeling like they have nothing to offer, Lord, I ask that you would turn your eyes inward on their heart and like the prophet did to the widow woman, that you would point out the answer to their need already resides within them. They carry a little oil. Hallelujah. Let's just wait on the Lord for a moment. I just feel like there's people here this morning that are... We've all struggled with disappointment to various degrees, but there's some of you this morning that are struggling with crippling disappointment. Unforeseen circumstances robbed you of the payday you thought was coming. You had expectations of a bright future and it was abruptly cut off. And the Lord wants to deal with that. I don't want to put anybody on the spot this morning. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you this morning and you're saying, I want the Lord to touch me in that area. I've got deep, deep disappointment that's crippling me. I want you to raise your hand right now. Amen. Yeah, all over this room. Yeah. Father, I ask, Lord, right now that you would just begin to minister to these. If you want prayer this morning, I'm going to open the altars. You can receive right where you're at, but if you would like prayer and someone to lay hands on you, we'd love to do that. I'm going to open the altars right now, so if you want that, just go ahead and make your way forward. Father, I just bless these. And Lord, I ask that you take these lessons, Lord, and root them in our heart. Establish them, we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.